well, there is much more richness and complexity to matter. I put in inverted commas because most yeah. people think of matter as the stuff in front of us, but muons and positrons are not in atoms. So muons, because they travel through rock, they can travel through large amounts of rock. You can use them to image the inside of a pyramid. Then positrons yeah. are amazing because you can use radioisotopes that emit positrons to trace out the functions of the human body. People went out and found these things almost serendipitously, even the instruments were invented almost serendipitously. And then today, you know, if I need my thyroid scanned, uh, I go in the hospital and I just don't think twice about it, about, you know, oh, there's a scanner there. Well, look at the backstory of that scanner. It's absolutely incredible. Welcome everyone to this episode of Into the Impossible with Susie Sheehy, accelerator physicist and author of The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Change the World. Those of you who are returning listeners know that your host, Brian Keating, is an experimental physicist. In this episode, we get to understand what that really means, how building instruments and designing experiments can lead to discoveries that even surprise theorists. Dr. Sheehy personifies our tagline, Always be curious, as she advocates for conducting research for the sake of curiosity itself. You're going to learn why Susie wrote The Manner of Everything as her first book, and how unanticipated discoveries can change the world. If you appreciate deep science conversations like these, please subscribe and take a moment to reward us with a five-star rating. Keep in touch by joining Professor Keating's email list at ryankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a bit of space dust in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Do you think curiosity is enough of a reason to experiment? Let us know and write us a review like this one. From Jonathan Milius. The End of the Impossible podcast is one of the most fascinating science podcasts out there. What sets it apart is the way it tackles some of the most complex and cutting-edge topics in science without dumbing them down for a popular audience. The conversations that take place on this show are the same ones happening behind the scenes in the scientific community, and the insights and perspectives that emerge are truly mind-bending. And now, be prepared to get excited about science through the unbridled enthusiasm of accelerator physicist, experimentalist, and author Susie Sheehy on Into the Impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to what promises to be one of the nerdiest episodes of the year. And that's when two experimental physicists get to just seriously nerd out over our favorite subject, which is building coolest stuff in the universe and using it to learn hitherto unknown things. And that's Professor Susie Sheehy of the University of Melbourne, I think is correct pronunciation, and Oxford on occasion, as I understand it. Uh, you're the 10th Oxonian to be on. Uh, I think you're the first Melbourneian to be on, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you're the second, uh, a second Australian to be on. We had Luke Barnes on uh, recently uh, this, this year, already in 2023. But today it is because of a phenomenal book that I've been waiting and asking you to come on the podcast for over a year because I mistakenly thought it was already out in America, but it actually came out in the UK first. And that's called The Matter of Everything. And that will be the subject of today's conversation. And Susie, as you know, uh, because I just told you, on this podcast, we love to do the thing you're never supposed to do, which is to judge a book by its cover. But I always say, what else do you have to go on? You know, you don't, every book doesn't come with a, with a crystal ball that you can look into. Um, so tell it's us. It's a particularly pretty cover, this it one is. as well. <laughs> it is beautiful, evocative. And so we love to understand the title and the cover art, but especially the subtitles. Because usually the author, sometimes the author doesn't have control over almost anything but the subtitles. So tell mm. me, Professor, how did you come up with the name, the title, the graphics? What, what did you uh, use as inspiration for this wonderful new book? Yeah. So um, as you just said, this is actually the second release. So it's already out in the UK and Commonwealth, um, which actually had a different cover and a different subtitle. So that's uh, an interesting change. So the the contribution of the main title, The Matter of Everything, was mine and actually my literary agents. We, we came up with that together. Um, and I 
I just, as soon as we hit on it, it was like, oh yeah, it has to be that because it's sort of a, a double meaning, right? Um, so it's literally a book about matter and, uh, matter literally makes up everything. Um, and, uh, at the same time, it's sort of talking about, uh, the matter of everything, uh, which implies sort of all of the stuff in our world, including technologies and modern society, which the book also hits on. So that kind of worked well. Um, the original subtitle for the UK version is called 12 Experiments That Changed Our World. Um, and actually, I a lot of people prefer the, the, the new US-Canada subtitle, which is How Curiosity, Physics and Improbable Experiments Change the World. I think it's just a little bit more descriptive of what's actually in the book and the fact it's a it is a story about experiments and particle physics. Very good. So uh, this book covers these 12 phenomenal, you know, kind of world and universe changing experiments. But the, um, the, the picture on the cover, at least the one you're holding now, mm. it's not of a modern experiment, right? Unless I'm like, I miss some serious symbolism there. No, it's just, I, I mean, I think it's beautiful. This, this um, pattern of just the, the electric fields around two, there's a positive charge and negative charge. It's just the electric field lines sort of displaying the invisible forces of nature. And I think that's, um, that was a lovely way. I actually didn't, that was the first cover art they proposed to me for the US version and everyone loved it. Um, people have pointed out some other slightly controversial things about the cover, which I also love. And I wonder if that's something that you have picked up on. Mm, um, no, tell us, Susie, please. So you notice the colorway is really beautiful. Uh, I yeah. love it. And there's a pink. So a couple of people have pointed out, um, and you can cut this from the podcast if it's too much. A couple of people have pointed out a Georgia O'Keefe-esque element of the pattern those dirty-minded physicists come on <laughs> and you know what as soon as someone pointed that out to me i was like oh this is definitely the cover for me then as a female physicist working in a male-dominated field and, and all throughout the declared feminist right uh, exactly and all throughout the book i've tried to reintegrate the stories of women whose stories are normally left out of the, yeah. the history of physics and so the fact that there is like a subtle feminist angle to the cover just yeah nailed it <laughs> yeah that's great that's right although we have to be careful with our metaphors and so forth here I, I thought it had something to do as a feminist i thought it had to do with you creating you know what could be called I, I believe there's third wave feminism if i've if i've if i've gotten that right but you are the unique person on earth perhaps to coin you know particle wave Feminism. I, I think you could make that duality better than anybody on earth. Particle wave uh, duality feminism, for sure, for sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. And you, you talk can be in about, there with me. That's right. You talk about that in this very book. You talk about the mysterious world of quantum and how it was revolutionized and how we made the transition. And just, you know, people think, oh, all these discoveries are hundreds of years old. No, the experiments you talk about are some of which occurred in the last 10 years and obviously cover the Higgs. We've, we've covered that a lot. And you do uh, sing the praises, rightfully so, of many of the uh, great heroines of modern science, not just physics. I was just listening to an interview I did with Ashley Yeager a year or so ago about Vera Rubin, um, who mm. was a Titanic scientist, uh, worked here at UC San Diego with the Jeffrey and Margaret Burbage. And Margaret was one of the Titanic physicists of the 20th century, astronomers of all time, perhaps. And I, I wonder if we could start with the first dichotomy that is sometimes lost on the general public. Uh, when I go on podcasts, or sometimes I'm sure you've been on podcasts, people think of physicists as all the same. You know, first of all, yeah. we're all, you know, Brian Greene or Jan Eleven or, or, or what have you. But um, what is the primary distinction in your mind of an experimental physicist? What can he or she most uniquely contribute to the public's understanding of something. Yeah, so I thought I thought that was an interesting one that when I started talking to people about physics, and even when they knew I was a physicist, they just kind of assumed that I'm a theoretical physicist. And that, you know, we can sort of blame a little bit the fact that in popular culture, a lot of physics is presented that way. A lot of books are written by theoretical physicists, maybe because they're the ones who have the time to sit and sit down and write <laughs> while the rest of us are in the lab. But in my view, yeah, that's sort of, I mean, if we were to create that dichotomy between theorists and experimentalists, some people do both, but um, an experimental physicist, rather than just looking at um, the mathematics and the mathematical concepts and trying to create a theory from which something can be predicted, their job, I, I sort of say, is much more nuanced. So they have to keep in mind and understand the mathematics and the theory and work with it, but they also have to be able to look beyond it and to look for things that maybe nobody has ever thought about before and nobody has predicted. 
And they also have a very unique skill set. So as well as having the mathematical and theoretical background and training, as you know, we also have to have all these other skills, which you often only learn on the job, things like electronics, superconductivity, uh, and, and, you know, working with like cryogenics, things like back in the day, Budget. it would have been glass blowing. Budgets. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Bane of my existence. Um, <laughs> you know, being, being able to just design, you know, sort of almost verging on engineering and being able to understand how to get something, uh, precision engineered, understanding grounding loops in the lab, understanding radiation shielding. That's been my one lately building my new lab. Um, so there's all these different skills that we actually have to have as well as signal processing, et cetera. Um, just to get to the point of doing something which can create new knowledge. And yet, when you combine all those skills together, we're able to do something that, I, in my view, a theorist can't, which is we can find something which we never thought was out there. Um, and that's a really powerful skill. And it kind of dovetails into my next question, which is, you know, do we need more Dracs or do we need more Rutherfords? I mean, Rutherford, they're both Big figures in this book, <laughs> but you know, kind of, are we overinvested? Uh, we have had a lot of uh, contrarians on this podcast, ranging from Sabina Hassenfelder to mm. Neil Turok, uh, decrying the the stagnation in theoretical physics. Essentially, for those that may not have heard those many many interviews, uh, there's a sense that string theory has kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the uh, theoretical particle physics world, and therefore uh, there's not uh, really room or oxygen molecules left for alternative theories, A, but B, we're kind of beholden to this unification dream that last bore fruit perhaps in the, in the late 1970s. Mm. Uh, what's your take? Do you feel like we're underinvested in theory, overinvested, uh, regardless of the sub- branch of, of, of theory, you know, whether it's particle physics or whatever, do you think if you were, you know, queen of the earth uh, and you had control <laughs> over the purse strings, not just over Australian purse strings, but what would you invest in? What would be, obviously you'd want some of both, but what do you think is, is the most fruitful avenue for us to, to pick the high hanging fruit that remains? Yeah, I think, um, obviously we have, we need both. Right. And I think, uh, you know, I'd have to go through the numbers for each individual country for like how well we're investing in, in each of those different areas. Although I, I do agree with the idea that we often, you know, sort of jump on a bandwagon, um, to the expense of other sort of lesser researched areas. And even the way that our funding systems sometimes work is that unless you're working in that hot area, you basically won't get any money. Um, and money as gosh as it is to mention it alongside curiosity driven research, money is what gets things done. Um, so that, that, that is an important perspective. Um, I think in my view, and one of the things I've tried to really champion in this book is, is just the power of experiments full stop. Now you can think on many different scales with this. Particle physics is at a point where our future experiments on the large scale are absolutely freaking enormous, right? And are going to consume vast amounts of budget to build any sort of future collider or large experiment there you know tens of billions of of dollars thousands of people etc so that is a huge investment and i i do think we need to be careful about how we make that investment and not commit to something too soon that turns out to be not the thing we really wanted and that is exactly the process that's happening in the at the moment and we have international processes to decide that among the community. And of course, there's always going to be people who are like, oh no, this is completely wrong. You're barking up the wrong tree. Um, but I, I think as much as we are as physicists susceptible to things like groupthink and ego and bias, I think when you've got that many smart, smart people who manage to actually collaborate and agree on what they do want to build together, I, I, I think in a way you should go with that, but not at the expense of everything else. So if yeah. you're not you know, if you're not involved in that like hot, big experiment, and actually I, my, my confession is in my career, I've never chosen to be on that big experiment. So I, I only worked on the Large Hadron Collider experiments as an undergraduate. And after that, I've worked on other projects. And nowadays I design particle accelerators for medicine. So I sort of stepped away from those big, big projects because I, I just decided that wasn't personally how I wanted to work. So I have a massive respect for people who do the same and who go, actually, do you know what? I can do this clever little experiment in my lab or in my country. I can build this dark matter detector, for example, is one that is being built near me in Melbourne in Australia to do a southern hemisphere version of the, the Dharma measurement that was made in the northern hemisphere to try and confirm a seasonal variation of dark matter, which would be important if we can do that in the southern hemisphere. So 
I respect people doing small scale experiments as well. I think in a way, my view is where people appear to have gone wrong. And I am slightly an outsider here because I work on accelerators, not directly on particle physics. My view of where some people go wrong is they, they really get into their own sort of group thinking bias. And we are, you know, I like to say that even though science is objective, scientists are not. Right. So yeah, we do fall the, into these. That's the problem. Science patterns. is done by scientists. Yeah. Yeah. If only we could do it with robots. No. <laughs> hey, friends, just a quick request while you're enjoying this video to leave a thumbs up. My thumb's a little bit preoccupied with all Carl Sagan over here, but I hope yours is free enough to leave a like. It really helps me with the algorithm. And for extra credit homework assignment, leave a comment down below what you're enjoying about this video. We'll speak to you so, later. so. So I think um, I do really appreciate the, the, the dissenters, the dissenting voices, and I mm -hmm. think they have something valuable to offer, uh, even if those dissenting voices are often like, no, everyone else in the world is wrong and I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's we, worth listening to their arguments, you know. Right. I'm, I'm sure you get those emails. I, I get them all the time. You know, Professor Keating, uh, I have this great idea, but everyone says I'm crazy. But, you know, they said this guy, Albert, was crazy too. And uh, yeah. I just need the help with the math. And, and then if, if you help me, <laughs> I'll split the Nobel Prize. I'll, I'll keep the money. You know, you could uh, – but, but the point <laughs> – I guess in, in, in right now we're in winter, you're in the middle of summer. Uh, we're in graduate student recruiting. Uh, okay. Mm. So we've got graduate students. I was just on the phone with a brilliant person. No, I won't tell you his name because you might poach him and he, he might want to <laughs> move down there. And then I'm trying Australia's to- Australia's uh, right. Come on over. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the elevator pitch for why a student should want to do experimental physics generally, but in particular to work with Professor Sheehy on um, particle adjacent, but, but certainly- any, I have to imagine anyone who's working with you is going to learn a lot about the, the history, the background, the experimental methods. What's so cool about that? Why is that such a fun thing to do in this age of, you know, kind of reverence for, you know, just content creation on the internet and YouTube, TikTok videos? What is the uh, kind of uh, sine qua non that would attract a brilliant young graduate student to join your lab as opposed to become a theorist or going to work for Google? Yeah, really great question. So I think... Um, what attracts people. And I'm going off the experience of, of people who've come and joined, joined my group here, right? And I ask them usually like, yeah, what, what, um, what attracted you to come and, and work in this area? And it was kind of exactly the same that attracted me to the area of particle accelerators themselves and the instrumentation and the experimental, uh, side, which is that, you know, all of these big ideas are amazing. All of these big ideas of how our universe works and that, that theoretical and conceptual understanding. But at the end of the day, you know, unless you're in the arena, unless you're in there and actually building something and trying to do it in a hands-on way, um, you're, you're sort of missing in a way the, the, the fun of it. And we live in this age where so much of our technology is like black box invisible to us. Um, you know, if you can even code, you're like one step ahead. But to be able to actually build something with your own hands yes. that lets you experience the world in a way that you otherwise can't see and experience. And then the added bonus in my group is to then do something with that knowledge, go back to the drawing board and design instruments and experiments which can actually make a difference to people's lives in the real world, as well as make a difference potentially to the next generation of hadron colliders or, or particle <laughs> physics experiments. That potentiality of, you know, you come work in my lab, you're going to learn the skills that can do so many things in the world, whether you're interested in that practical everyday application of, you know, extending cancer care access to low and middle income countries, which is one of the projects I work on, or whether you want to work toward the future circular collider at CERN. Um, that's one of the things that I find amazing in my field about accelerator physics is that we mix together all these different areas of like plasma physics, nonlinear dynamics and uh, electromagnetism. And out of that just comes this amazing uh, growth of opportunity of what we can do in the world using the fundamental nature of matter. I think that's my, yeah, th that that's would be my a, elevator pitch. And it's what people are sort of strong reflecting pitch, back And to then me. you can just hit them with the book and say, you know, you're an idiot. Yeah, and, and <laughs> here's a signed copy. Join the group. Yeah. <laughs> I make them pay. I make all prospective graduates oh. pay. For no, I'm just kidding. Um, so when I first heard about your book, I thought, um, you know, it might be kind of a counterpoint to, 
Hope Yaren has this book called Lab Girl, which is a lovely mm. book. She's a biologist, a tree biologist, ecologist, I think. I think she was at Hawaii, but now she's in North. Anyway, I can't keep track of all these people. Um, yeah, I've read her book. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting because I think the issue of you know uh, her personal struggles are, are interesting, and certainly almost everything is memoir. But what I love so much about your book is that it's personal, and and you talk about, but you're. Again, you're talking about it from the perspective of a professional. And what the hallmark is of the book is that you're you're kind of entreating the reader to approach these incredibly mysterious phenomena as a professional, not just like an interested dilettante. Um, and I wonder, you know, was that a conscious choice? Did you want to, you know, take people more less on a mem- memoir kind mm. of journey as Hope did, which is a wonderful book and I love it and I've given it to as people to, as gifts. But was it less meant intended to be a memoir so that you could focus on that which drew you to become an experimental physicist? Yeah, I think um, at first, when I first started writing it, it's my first book, right? It's my debut. So um, at first you don't know how to write a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and working through that exact question was part of the process of, of writing the book is how much of me, how much of my stories do I want in the book versus how much of this is about the the ideas that excite me and trying to portray those ideas and um eventually there was a sort of compromise made of uh, where sort of my story leads us in and my story sort of takes us out again at the end and brings us back to today but then within the book I chose to sort of lead with the science and lead with that curiosity and lead with those outcomes. But I mentioned before that I rewrote in these stories of women. And I think one of the wonderful things about doing that, I realized when we sort of stepped back from the process um, and read the finished thing, is that their stories kind of tell my story in a way without me having to, to spell out all the ins and outs in, in a memoir. And what's interesting is that my US editor it was actually the same editor who did Hope Jaron's Lab Girl. Um, really? Yeah. So, uh, so we, we talked a lot about that and about how much to include. Um, it was also a, you know, I had a UK editor and a US editor. So there's always that play in the publishing world of, well, it's my decision at the end of the day. And they, ha- they actually had different, differing opinions on mm. how much should be memoir and how much, uh, should be really science led. And I'm, yeah. I'm really pleased with, with how it balanced out in the end, because, because that, because I, I don't have to sit through every interview with people asking me about, every incidence of, say, harassment that I've experienced because it's right. not in there. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I get to highlight the women who really did the work and that just feels so much more positive and empowering to me to be able to bring that story instead of like a negative story about their experience or my experience. Yeah. I mean, one of the most towering figures and, you know, I've done a video on my channel about it. I called the most important experiment of all time was Madame Wu, C.S. Wu, mm. talk uh, in the book about. I wonder if you could if you could pick a favorite, you know, we all of us who have children always say, you know, we can't can't choose our favorite child. It's my mom used to say it's like asking her to choose between her left arm and her right arm, <laughs> yeah. to which I say, mom, you're left handed. Come on. You know, um, you're obviously going to choose your left hand. Uh, but is there a person, male or female, it doesn't matter, but is there a character, is there, is there a figure that really stands out? I mean, the one that keeps coming back so often is, is Rutherford, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he just seemed to have this brought to life by your wonderful writing, this outsized personality, which I never knew about. I, I mean, I remember seeing him on the way to Antarctica. We go through, there's a museum, uh, and there, there's uh, a lot of information about him, and then I know he was in Canada and, and so forth, But he, and he initiated so much of what we do as modern particle mm. physics. He was kind of my favorite, you know, if I have to confess, character in the book, but do yeah. you have a favorite? Is there, is there an, uh, a, you know, a figure who really brought the drama, the passion, the love that you and I share for doing experiments to life most for you? I, I feel like I feel like that description is really describing Ernest Rutherford and, and his approach. And um it may it becomes more difficult in the second half of the book when we go past World War II and then we get these large collaborations and international experiments because then it becomes less about the individual and more about the collaboration. So it becomes difficult then to <clears throat> to sort of say, oh yeah, this amazing person from this era. Um if if I if I had to choose someone other than Rutherford, it would be Bob Wilson, um, mm-hmm. who uh, who was actually 
the founding director of what became Fermilab because he was this beautiful combination of experimental physicist, kind of cowboy, um, and, <laughs> and poet and sculptor. So he had this wonderful combination of skills in the creative, uh, the practical and the theoretical, which he mm. sort of brought to bear in his leadership of that project. And he, his quote, which I, I write in the book, um, justifying the sort of Fermilab project to Congress uh, is one that I use so much in so many of my talks because it so epitomizes why we do particle physics. Do you, do you want me to read out just the end of it, if I can find yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I, I would love that, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's see if I can find it. It is so poetic, and, it, and it, actually I heard it spoken by Leon Letterman at my yeah. college graduation. Leon was, of course, a towering figure in particle physics, Nobel laureate, and he quoted from this at the commencement speech at Case Western where I went 30 years ago. So mm. yeah, I would love it if you, uh, if you have it handy, otherwise we'll make sure I to, to put it on screen. Um, sorry. Yeah. So Wilson was before, before the Senator, John Pastor, um, um, who was asking him about this proposed machine and it was 1969 and, you know, obviously it's costly and it's risky because they don't know what's going to come of it because it's doing research, obviously. Um, and so, <laughs> and so at first, uh, Wilson actually justifies it based on, well, we're doing extremely difficult technical things and, and the outcome of that always sort of pays for itself in the long run in new technological innovations, which became true with the Tevatron because they uh, basically industrialized superconducting wire. So that's why we now have MRI scanners available. But then, um, but then Wilson really delves down on the cultural aspect. So the senator asks him, does, uh, does this project have anything to do with the security of the country? <clears throat> and Wilson just says no. So he was involved in the Manhattan Project. He's a pacifist, very strong pacifist at this point. Um, and he will have nothing to do with like defense and, and, and ever again. So the senator pushes him on it. It's like nothing at all. He's trying to help him justify it. And then Wilson just knocks it out of the park. He says, it has only to do with the respect with which we regard one another, the dignity of man, our love of culture. It has to do with, are we good painters, good sculptors, great poets? I mean, all the things we really venerate in this country and are patriotic about. It has nothing to do directly with defending our country except to make it worth defending. Yeah. And every time I get shivers, every yeah. time. <laughs> it's so evocative and, and so true. It's, uh, my late great colleague, uh, particle physicist Hans Parr, who passed away sadly a few years ago, uh, work, he was Letterman's graduate student, actually. And he used to say things, you know, in his German accent, you know, that relativity is the highest culmination of Western civilization. <laughs> Western civilization? What about the Mona Lisa? Yeah. But if you think about it, really, um, I would only add experimental verification of relativity because mm. relativity required mathematics, advanced communication, um, uh, and, and then finally verification and scientific uh, hypothesis testing by experiments. Uh, mm. and, and we take it for granted every day anytime we use you know, a GPS device to get anywhere. Um, but I wonder you know, when we're teaching these things because the, the Einsteins you – know, I, I have all these – I have all these thumb, you know, I've got Carl Sagan around here somewhere. I've got uh, Isaac Newton. I've mm. got Einstein. But I don't have any experimentalists, you know, maybe someday ah. to do a finger puppet of Susie Sheehy. Uh, but I, I don't know if uh, you'd license your, your likeness. But the, 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 you know, the feeling I have is I want my students to know as much about theory as any of the theoretical graduate students studying theoretical physics. I just mm. don't expect them to do theoretical physics, like come up with some new theory, although some have, you know, come up with contributions to phenomenology or, or, yeah. or you know, perhaps some analysis technology. But what do you think is the, you know, we've heard from Lenny Susskind, another famous, ultra famous uh, theoretical physicist, you know, the theoretical minimum. What's the experimental minimum? Is it this book? Because, I mean, the book is, is it certainly would be a component of it if I had to, you know, c come up with a curriculum for, for bright undergraduates to kind of, what's the next, you know, how, how do we become an experimental physicist? But what about before this book takes place? I mean, every author has to start mm. the narrative somewhere. Why did you draw the line at the 20th century and beyond? Oh, goodness. So the, the, choice, of, the choice of the time scale to explain ex is not the whole story of experimental physics. In fact, it arguably ignores thousands of experiments <laughs> that, um, that could have been beautiful, right? There's, there's many versions of this book that could have been written. Um, so, you know, like choose your own adventure. But I chose the particle physics route, uh, partly because that's my background. Um, but also because particle physics just has this reputation of being like such an esoteric subject, right? Such a, such a theoretical subject, even like, yep. Yeah, 
quantum mechanics, yeah, the development of that happens somewhat within the book. Um, nuclear physics, uh, you say the word nuclear, everyone just has this very negative connotation. Radiation has a similar connotation. And then by the time you get to quarks, everyone's like, who cares? Uh, it's not real, you know? <laughs> like, so there's this, there's this view that, um, the different things that I talk about in particle physics, people have a very disjointed view of them. Um, and they also have this view that they're very separate from our lives. And I just had this very strong feeling from working in the field for, for so long that like, wait, no, this stuff underpins our technology. And we don't even know, you know, most people don't even know that it's there uh, because they think that th physics is just a theoretical subject and that it doesn't have ramifications in the real world when you think about things like how fundamental particles work. And so that was my like key thing that I wanted to get across was that this stuff really affects your lives. Uh, it may affect it on a long time scale um, because of the innovations that come from it. It may affect it on the short term because, oh, suddenly you understand there's radiation raining down on you from space and that affects things. <laughs> so so I wanted, I wanted people to put those things together and I found that the way to put those things together was really through the experiments, through the that development and the discoveries that were made, not through the theoretical angle, in in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. But you, you mentioned something early in, in the formation of that question about teaching. <clears throat> and that's like a whole other can of worms because, yeah, we teach theoretical physics. Basically, any course you take in physics is almost entirely theoretical physics. Right. And I agree with you that I want my students coming into the lab, being able to solve Hamiltonians and being able to, you know, like do do theoretical physics, they actually need it to do their experimental work as well. But then where are they going to get these experimental skills from? And like some students are lucky enough that they went to a high school or, you know, that they have great laboratory, um, undergraduate laboratories available to them in their universities. And some don't. Uh, and I was someone who really didn't do that much in a hands-on sense when I was in school in science class, but I did do quite a lot sort of out of school and like side projects. Um, and then in university, I was quite lucky that we have like this amazing suite of live demonstrations for lecturers to use, which I now get to get to demonstrate, which is awesome. Um, and they also have like really good undergraduate laboratory projects here. But even then, even then, there's this point at which you have to learn to go beyond what's written on the like lab script and actually learn to tinker and learn to find your way through a problem, building a thing yourself. And that um, that just at the moment comes from experience and I do wonder if there's a better way in constructing the way that we teach and talk about physics that yeah. would help people you know get get into that a little bit more because it's it's such an important skill uh and as we get more and more of our technology as I said earlier you know starts to look like it's a black box and we don't understand what's inside it we become so divorced from that that's like well how many people actually have those skills? Like, are we just going to machine learn everything because we've forgotten right. how to actually do anything? <laughs> That's right. When I have a list of, uh, you know, uh, possible skills wanted, uh, you know, to join my group, I, I always include like, you know, did your mother own a welding company? You know, like, cause they, they won't put those. If, oh, if I don't know Python or if I don't know, yeah, machine learning, uh, TensorFlow, it's, I'm not, I can't be a physicist. It's like nothing could really be further from the truth. Even Einstein, mm had some patents and and actually the mm. things that he was most kind of driven by his Gedanken experiments were things like that involved the observation of physical phenomena in an experimental context uh, uh, a magnet uh, a compass uh, and the interaction between them that he called something deeply hidden title mm. of book by past guest Sean Carroll uh, and uh, or or his famous you know um, uh, thoughts on the equivalence principle and the uh, general principle of general relativity that an observer in free fall um, would experience no gravitational force and that he obtained by thinking about it and he called that his happiest thought and mm. I always say like to what extent could a computer a know what it's like to free fall <laughs> and then b <laughs> like what would it mean that it has a happy thought so I don't think we're going to be replaced anytime soon. By, uh, by by any sort of uh, stretch of the imagination. That's true. But, but th those observational I, skills are interesting, aren't they? When when people come in to do experimental physics, they're like, oh, I've got all these coding skills. And I'm like, okay, so um, are you cool with getting your crane license? Because you're going to need that in the lab. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that fills next into my question. Like the books, uh, sorry, <clears throat> the, you mentioned that, you know, for theory, it's, it's, it's summed up, you know, there's a progression. You take Jack, you read Jackson, you read Griffith, whatever it is. 
And then uh, you move up the ladder, Barbara Ryden, past guest on the podcast, the most influential uh, cosmology book uh, in the world right now for undergraduates. Um, and it's all these just series of just like home run after home run and, and, and to the, uh, I don't know, cricket century. Am I getting that? Cricket century. Uh, is cricket popular down where you are? It is. Rugby? It is. Okay. I mean, the tennis what, is on what? at the moment. So I don't know. Is oh, there yeah, a tennis right, analogy? Open. That's right. Okay. <laughs> ace. I'll, I'll say there you ace. There An ace. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, uh, it's just one after another. And then to the extent you're right that we teach experiments, it's canned experiments, black box experiments, uh, some from 200 years ago. And, and then of course you start with the uh, balls rolling down inclined planes and then we wonder like why aren't students interested in this but um, I wonder my impression of being an experimental physicist for the last 30 plus years is that getting like the answer whatever that number is is like not even half the battle and, and mm. most of what we do correct me if I'm wrong in your field uh, is is looking at the ways that you could be wrong in other words, the thing we don't teach the students, like we did, we do the Davis and Germer experiment. We do, um, you know, cloud chamber stuff. All the stuff, cool, fun, amazing, you know, things that you describe in your book, right? We do all those, and, and if you don't get the right answer, if you do like the Cavendish experiment, and you get the wrong answer, as I did many times in my undergraduate career. It's because of you. It's not because of the universe, right? So, so mm. we're taught to get the answer. You know, six times ten to the minus, you know, whatever, um, uh, for Newton's capital G or whatever it is. Or the Millikan oil drop experiment that you also talk about. Now, my problem is that you know that where the answer is. So half the fun of being a physicist is when you don't know what the answer is. You don't even know what you're looking for. And then you have to prove to yourself that you are not – You know, it's not like being in a court of law. You have to prove that you're right, not that you could be possibly wrong. So I wonder if we don't really – do the greatest job teaching students that the, the challenge are in the systematic errors and the analysis of what's wrong with the system. And I wonder, mm. you know, to what extent does that drive what you do? And maybe you could ex explain what is the, what is the proper way to think about what we actually do as experimentalists? Is it getting the right answer? Is it assessing the mm. error bars, the tolerances, the bounds? You do this so well in, as a particle physicist, but what is it to you? What is the, the, the as I say, the sine qua non, the core essence of being an experimentalist. Yeah, I, I think um, in some of that explanation there in the question, you actually summed it up pretty well in in my experience and opinion, which is that um, you're trying to to build something which is uh, accessing an idea or accessing something in nature um, that you don't know the answer to. And that was actually the point in my undergraduate career when I decided and got more serious about, about physics is first I got sort of inspired of like what I could learn. But then later I realized I was much more interested in the questions that didn't have answers than the questions that, that did have answers. And it took me a while to come to that because everything I was being taught seemed like we already knew the answers and it was my job to catch up and f find out and learn. And if I I didn't do that well enough then I wasn't smart enough because I wasn't Einstein etc um you know all the things that we that we experience as a as a student when we yeah <laughs> and and yet um no one tells you that actually being able to ask good questions is a key skill of being a scientist and then having the persistence to try and see through your own biases and mistakes and and frustrations especially in the lab um to convince yourself that you have found the answer to your question, because even how you form the question and, and the many small questions that that generates is important. And yeah, so a lot of people come into, say, a PhD in, in my one of my labs. Um, I still have a lab over in the UK as well. And they think they're going to be like walking in there, taking some data, doing some fancy new thing. Uh, and then the actually, nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then actually they're like, oh, why does the signal look this way? And how do right. I get rid of the noise on this signal? And uh, this experiment appears to have gremlins inside it. It appears to have a life of its own. Why is it not working the way, the way that Professor I think it works? Whenever Professor Sheehy is around, it suddenly <laughs> stops working. And there's two, there was two wonderful things I found in my research for the book from, from famous experimentalists, both Ernest Rutherford and J.J. Thompson. And the one about Ernest Rutherford I love, which is that um, he, he firmly believed that the more you swear at an experiment, the more likely it is to work. <laughs> <laughs> which maybe only works in the in the sort of Aussie context, but um, right. I don't typically swear at my experiments. But if you find me doing it, it's it's I'm using Rutherford's technique. It's it's You're validated. Rutherford, yeah. I mean, it worked for him clearly. Uh, but the other the other thing I found, and I didn't write um, so much about this in the book, but I read a lot of the autobiographies and memoirs of the experimentalist who whose mm. experiments I was writing about. 
And J.J. Thompson's one was particularly interesting because even to his peers, he was this like super brainy, slightly scarily smart guy, right? Um, and yet in his reflections on working in the lab, he was very open with this this sense of frustration and this sense of having to learn your equipment and having to learn your apparatus so well, so much better than you think you're going to need to to know about it in order to make any progress in in the lab. To the extent that he he wrote something, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something uh, along the lines of um, that when you have these things that we already know, like you were just talking about, that these theoretical ideas, and you're trying to um, reproduce it he was like the least likely place you're going to do that is in the physics lab like because it's just so hard to get those those results out in the first place and this was really my aim in writing this writing the story in the way that I did is to try and put people in that mindset of what did we actually know at this point in time and that was very difficult in the research process because everyone writes the physics history backwards from what we know now. And I tried to write it forwards. I was like, what did they actually know at this point in time? What were the questions they were actually asking? And then how did it happen that they got from there to the knowledge that they they came to? And I think that digs into the essence of really what we do as experimentalists, which is we are moving knowledge forward, but it does not happen in the linear way that we're taught the yeah. sort of pigeon version of history of physics when when we learn the subject. So right. I hope that that's something people can really take away from the story is all that work that I put in trying to yeah. find no, the forwards it, it, path through the history. Yeah. It really, it really shines through in the book. And another thing for me, you know, it's like, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you're reading a book by a colleague. It's a popular science or trade book, as they call them here. Uh, and you're like, well, I kind of know all this, so I can just skip it. And uh, I should say I read the book, but I also listened to it on audiobook, and Susie narrates the audio. Uh, and it's just uh, – it's mellifluous and, and lovely, and, it's, and it is a, a work uh, to be savored. I, I really did appreciate it so much. Uh, uh, and, and I want to say you know, you probably left a lot on the cutting room floor, as you just mentioned. But one of the things that I didn't skip over, and I was like a nagging thing that, that always bothered me that you helped to resolve in my mind, which is – Related to what we do as cosmologists using the cosmic microwave background radiation, one of your colleagues, Christian Reichart uh, uh, in Melbourne, um, he and I and our teams are, are working to investigate and measure the properties and the mass, in fact, of the only elementary particle whose mass is currently unknown, and that's the neutrino. And I always thought to myself, ah, well, you know, let's say we cosmologists, we're so smart, you know, we've measured the the, sh- the uh, geometry of the universe, the age of the universe, the expansion rate, you know, we're so brilliant. But would a particle physicist really believe an experimentalist in cosmology if, you know, he or she is told that we have measured the mass of a particle? Because that's their domain, right? And we're, now mm. we're, we, you know, stay in your lane, Keating. Uh, but <laughs> I didn't really appreciate how much the humble – Cosmic ray um, played a role, and and not just for uh, the phenomenon itself. But I wonder if you could wax poetically about the technology that it enabled and the literal heights that experimentalists went to, as you describe in this wonderful book. Yeah, I I love the the story of cosmic rays because it just breaks open our com- concept of what exists in the universe. Like before the discovery of cosmic rays, I guess people looked out at the night sky and it sort of thought, oh, it's all quiet. And then there's some shiny things off in the distance, you know. Um, and, and the way it was found, most people don't, don't know how, what was, what motivated people to go and look for this radiation that comes down from space. And it was that they were in the lab. Sorry, one second. <clears throat> so scientists in the lab in really the early 1900s were, they just discovered radioactivity. And so the way you measured radioactivity at that point was using an electroscope or an electrometer, which is literally just a really simple device that counts electric charge or that can, tell you how much electric charge there is. And when you move an electroscope away from a radioactive substance, the amount of charge you should pick up should decrease. Um, This like one over R squared law, right? And they found that actually, even when it was far away, they seemed to detect more radiation than they expected. And this was something that had plagued them for many years. And it was very difficult because um, that was the only thing they had to measure it with. So people started getting curious about this. Why is there this extra radiation? Well, 
radiation itself had been found in minerals from the earth. So they thought, ah, there just must be more radiation in the earth in my particular area. So people started taking these things down underwater in like submarines. Uh, they took them up the Eiffel Tower uh, and, and they took them um, even you know, in tunnels so that they could be surrounded by the earth. And consistently they found that no, actually it doesn't look like this extra radiation is coming from the earth. It, it wasn't consistent. And so then a few people got this idea, oh, we're going to take them up in hot air balloons. We're going to go up further away from the earth. And then the amount of radiation we discover should decrease. And uh, But the instruments weren't good enough. And then a new version was invented. And finally, Victor Hess in about 1911 gets this hot air balloon, does five or six different flights up to about 5,000 feet, which is must have been freezing. <laughs> I don't know how he operated the instruments at that height. Um, but he managed to do the first sort of definitive set of measurements that showed that first the radiation decreases as you go away from the earth, from the minerals, and then the amount of radiation that he detected increased and increased further and further as he went up. And this, he concluded, was radiation coming from space, interacting in the atmosphere and then creating all whatever it was that he was detecting. And he didn't he had no idea what it was composed of at that point. And then almost coincidentally at the same time, one of the researchers who'd gone in a tunnel in Scotland to try and solve this radiation problem, but wasn't that interested in it, Charles Wilson, he invents the first type of particle detector called a cloud chamber, which he originally invented to study meteorology and then discovered that little bits of radiation would cause particle tracks that went through this beautiful sort of um, alcohol vapor in, in or, or water vapor he used originally uh, in his chamber. And so people start taking these cloud chambers up mountains. Like it was this incredibly adventurous period Heroic, through yeah. to like the early 19, early mid 1930s, where you get these these chambers with their photographic devices wrapped in these huge coils that form a magnet that sort of consumes all the electricity from a huge generator. And, you know, the, the truck breaks down on the way up the mountain and it's freezing and they spend like six weeks collecting data. And then in 1932, um, they found in the images from a cloud chamber particles that looked like electrons but were bending the wrong way in a magnetic field, uh, which almost immediately they realized were positrons, which the first discovered form of antimatter. But Carl Anderson, who did that experiment, didn't even know that antimatter had been predicted three years earlier by Dirac. <laughs> Dirac. He, he found it in the experiment without knowing it was predicted. And Dirac didn't motivate anybody to go out and do the experiment because he didn't think it was really real in nature. Right. <laughs> he thought it was almost like a quirk of the equations. Right. So we get antimatter and then four years later we also get the discovery of the muon that no one predicted at all, which is the heavier version of the electron. Um, and from there really we start to get this sense of, oh, there is much more richness and complexity to matter, I put in inverted commas because most yeah. people think of matter as the stuff in front of us, but muons and positrons are not in atoms. Um, and, and suddenly it opens up this exploration of the subatomic world. And um, even, I mean, it blows my mind that it, we've even found uses for those particles. So muons, because they travel through rock, they can travel through large amounts of rock. You can use them to image the inside of a pyramid uh, and find, they found a, a new empty chamber in Khufu's Great Pyramid in Giza that way. Um, you can even use them to image magma inside a volcano uh, just by putting detectors either side and using the cosmic ray muons. And then positrons yeah. are amazing because you can use radioisotopes that emit positrons inside the human body to trace out the functions of the human body using positron emission tomography scanners. So again, like linking up, okay, people went out and found these things almost serendipitously, even the instruments were invented almost serendipitously. And then today, you know, if I need my thyroid scanned, uh, I go in the hospital and I just don't think twice about it, about, you know, oh, there's a scanner there. Well, look at the backstory of that scanner. It's absolutely incredible. <laughs> it truly is. And actually, I wanted to uh, I want to talk more about serendipity in the time we have left. But first, mm. I want to talk more about your um, your actual work and what you're doing now uh, in medical and device physics. And and just to remind listeners, we're, we're talking with Professor Susie Sheehy, uh, author of The Matter of Everything. Uh, and I shouldn't show you one of my kids as a T-shirt that he got from one of his friends, and it said. Um, 
you matter on the front of it. And it says, unless you multiply by C squared, then you energy. And <laughs> I got so mad at that shirt because it's like, no, it's not matter. It's mass. Come on. Uh, but anyway, you can't correct uh, what these T-shirt manufacturers are doing nowadays. But uh, but we're talking with Susie, author of uh, The Matter of Everything. Now, the kind of pivot that takes place in this book, at least for you professionally, is that, you know, spoiler alert, you, you know, you kind of win the day, the heroine's journey. She's now a professor, the coveted, you know, goal of, of, of science. And maybe if we get a chance to talk some other time, maybe here or there, uh, we'll get into more of the, what I call the academic hunger games and how hard it is and mm. how, uh, just, just impressive you are and how, how much stuff you've done to get where you are. But talk about what you do. What, what, what is the science that you're involved with the application ranging from what Alfred Nobel really wanted with his Nobel prizes, as, as I talk about in my book, my first book, and you talk about in your book, um, which was serendipitously discovered, uh, but it was to benefit mankind. They mm. said mankind back then. Now you'd say humankind. But this was a medical device, but it was invented by a physicist. Talk about that tradition that you're carrying on so proudly today. Right. So, so much of the discovery and in innovation in this story um, actually traces the path through the invention of particle accelerators, which are, you know, the tools, the main tools that we have now uh, to explore the first inside the atom and then to explore well beyond that and these particles that are out there in the universe. But along the way, as each of these new technologies was invented, a new ideas came along of how to pull particles out of the atom, you know, form them into a bunch and give them a lot of energy in a very precise way. Um, that itself became a whole field of physics, which is called accelerator physics, which is the field that I work in. So rather than, you know, I don't, I, although I studied it, I don't daily use, you know, quantum field theory and all of these things. Yeah. I'm, I'm, right. I'm back there using, you know, mostly advanced electromagnetism, nonlinear dynamics, things like that. And what my role is, is I'm trying to go back to the drawing board of how it is that we can take these particles and give them energy on, on some fundamental way. And, uh, and trying to understand how we can reconfigure particle accelerators to make better use of those particles, um, and produce better quality beams for all sorts of applications. So my previous work was actually in trying to produce very high intensity beams. Now that's important for particle physics because you just get more collisions if you have higher intensity beams. Um, but it's important in some other areas as well, um, like neutron generation for neutron spallation source facilities, like big scientific facilities that other people use. And the challenge there is quite interesting, right? Most people don't think about this. You can only accelerate a charged particle with an electric charge, and yet charged things repel each other. And most people don't think about this because they think about if you picture a beam in a particle accelerator, most people in their mind's eye, kind of picture a laser beam, right? Like this organized collection that goes forward. But light's easy because it doesn't push itself apart in the way that a charged particle beam will. So if you try and pack a whole lot of charged particles in there, imagine tiny galaxies as the bunches of particles rotating, swirling, doing all these crazy nonlinear effects, interacting with each other, interacting with the magnets and the beam pipe. There's electrical and magnetic fields flying around everywhere. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And yet we need to be able to control that while it's going around almost at the speed of light uh, so that we lose less than one particle in a million or we risk melting the machine down, right? So this is incredibly important that we get this right. So sometimes from, there'll be a person in there, you know, too, right? To, for added added difficulty. <laughs> a human yeah, being well, when you're not too far away. <laughs> that's the thing. And then and then when we get to applications, then, yeah, you're taking that same physics and you want to get that right because at the end of that device, you're placing a patient who has a tumor and you're trying to treat that tumor very, very precisely um, in, in multiple forms, both either with heavy particles or with x-rays and radiation. So then it becomes even more important that we understand exactly what's happening with that beam and how to how to control it. Yet at the same time, there's always this pressure. Everything has to be smaller. Everything has to be cheaper. Everything ha everything has to be more effective. And the way that we can do that is going back to the going back to the physics drawing board and going right. How can we change this system such that we can shrink these things down and make them cheaper and better and more purpose built for the applications that we have? Most people don't realize that there's not just two or three particle accelerators in the world doing physics stuff. There's like no. 50,000 
particle accelerators yeah. in the world. And about half of them are medical and about half of them are industrial and like a tiny, tiny fraction is used for, like for physics. People here in San Diego or in California generally, they're like, we don't want to build any more you know, nuclear reactors for power. They're dangerous. I'm like, do you realize just in San Diego Bay, there's like six nuclear reactors and submarines <laughs> and aircraft carriers? Like you don't just like, oh, they turn off when they get to port. No, they're – but of course, yours, your technology is, is, is used for – and very peaceful purposes. And I wonder, as mm. happened with people ranging from, you know, the first Nobel laureate, uh, you know, with uh, the discovery of what we now call Rentgen rays. No, we, I still wish we called them Rentgen rays. I think it's fun. To they still do in, in places in some x-ray departments in Germany, Germany right? it's still called Rentgenology yeah. or yeah, Rentgen rays. Yep. <laughs> but I think yeah, you, you said that he, he's the one who gave it that distinction. And then later there were things called N rays and, and now we have beta rays and so forth. Um, that was serendipitous. And I wonder, you know, dovetailing back to the question that we were just kind of ruminating on with, with, um, uh, at the, at the start, which was, you know, these larger and larger accelerators, so to speak. I wonder if, we're going to come full circle in that my fears will be allayed that we couldn't really maybe have counted on particle physicists to trust, you know, cosmologists uh, unless there were the discovery of cosmic rays, et cetera. And we wouldn't have predicted that you could get this device for removing tumors, you know, from a particle, from a cloud chamber or, you know, from an electroscope. Mm. But you, you prove the pathway direct lineage and the heritage there. But I wonder, are we going to come full circle where we, we can no longer build bigger and bigger instruments of the type. You talk about the cost. And even though, as you rightfully point out, it's a tiny fraction of the cost that I think Americans spend on lipstick every year is <laughs> the NSF or NASA's budget. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's not likely. I mean, past guest James Beecham has talked about putting a collider on the moon. Mm. You know, we'll see when, you know, my great, 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 great grandkids or graduate students, maybe that'll happen. What do you see as the future? Um, do you think we're going to stifle innovation because we will simply have picked all the low hanging fruit by the successes of the men and women that you talk about in this book? Have we outdone ourselves in that there's really unlikely to be discoveries tantamount to, you know, the CT, MRI, pet technology, all the stuff that you work on and contribute to, or stuff that I contribute to in cosmological experiments, which are also getting big. Have we picked all the low-hanging fruit? Or is there hope? Are you more optimistic than than, uh, than pessimistic? Yeah, I, I've, my initial response to that is I'm probably more optimistic <laughs> than than pessimistic around it. Um, first of all, with like the big, the large-scale experiments, I think I, you know, I've come to realize that one of the lovely things about the serendipitous way or and, and the sort of slightly unexpected way in which science progresses is that sometimes a kind of left field suggestion will actually end up taking over. And this happens um, in my field, at least this has happened again and again to revolutionize the technology with some new idea that's come in. And so uh, let me just give you a hint of one of those is that one of the limitations in and why the accelerators are so big is because you can only accelerate so much using a voltage, right? Because at some point yeah. you're going to have electrical breakdown. Well, if you take a system that's already electrically broken down like a plasma and you start generating electric and magnetic fields in that you're not limited by breakdown anymore and that's exactly mm. what people are looking at in plasma based accelerators so driving that either with a laser or another particle beam to try and uh, create electric wake fields that can accelerate particles and even in my career, you know, even in the last 10, 15 years, that has come from a almost completely theoretical concept to something where they're now working with industry to make small scale tests of whether or not they can use this for x-ray imaging, depending on the scale of things. So like that, that development is incredible. And I'm keeping a very close watching eye on, on that field at the moment, because if that technology gets to the point where I think we can really use it for large scale accelerators. Oh, I'll be in there trying to work with them on how you how you put this stuff together, how how you put our existing knowledge together with their crazy plasma stuff and um and generate the next generation of machines. And maybe it's something like that that allows us to go beyond the energy reach for example that one you know a machine the size of the moon would require um and instead build a smaller system by being smarter and by taking the ideas yeah. that we know and combining them together. And that's where I have this the thing that I, I often say that the, the sort of utility of these ideas really grows over time. So I'm optimistic that we will solve those sorts of challenges and won't have to put all our eggs in one basket and go very, very, very slowly for decades. <laughs> I had a visitor come in, not a graduate student, 
but a young a young child. So hopefully gotcha. he's out of out of earshot range now. But I, I could tell I, something I, was going on. I was like, what's going on? Yeah, is he, uh, am uh, I over yeah, time? I is he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll make sure we doctor that up. Um, so we've reached the the hour when uh, I like to ask my guests who come on a series of questions that I call. In, uh, existential questions. Um, we have time for two. I'm going to ask you first, though, uh, pertinent to the name of this podcast, which is called Into the Impossible, based on Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous saying that the only way to discover the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible. And in this book, you talk about persistence. And I wonder if you could elaborate, perhaps as a way to en- you know answer this question of what gave you the courage to go into the impossible. You mentioned not only persistence, but the freedom to persist. What does that mean? Can you elaborate on what do you mean by the freedom to persist, not just the persistent, the trait of being persistent? Yeah, so I, I see I see the trait of being persistent or resilient as an more an individualist approach, right? Whereby, you know, I'm struggling through something and you're like, just keep going, just keep going. And I, you know, come into work every day and continue working on it. Um, I think that's very different from what I'm trying to get at, which is the freedom to persist is more a cultural phenomenon where it's like, are we creating in environments in which people can actually persist without having to give up all the time. And this, you know, in some other occasion could lead to us really analyzing the structure of how we do research and how academia works in particular. We always have all of these different pressures on us now more so than in, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, The stories that I've told in the book, uh, you know, because most of the men had wives at home, they were free to just sort of do their thing. Their experiments didn't cost much, so the funding was available, uh, and they could just basically sit and think and work and 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 do all of that. Now, oh my goodness, you know, the role of an academic, <laughs> we have like 17 different jobs in, in one when we do research. And then we're constantly, constantly having to find funding to keep our research going. And that is such a killer for creativity and curiosity. It means that we're much less likely to take risks with our research and we're much less likely to follow our curiosity because we're like, oh, that little thing that's happening over there in my experiment that I don't understand, oh, I'll just assume it's not important. Whereas it might have actually been the discovery of something completely new if you, you know, depending on obviously the scale of experiment that you do. So to me, the freedom to persist is quite an important one because it's about giving the people the opportunity to actually pursue the goals that they're looking at. And that's a real shift in perspective societally as well in how we value research and how we value this activity, which seems on the surface to not day-to-day produce something which has monetary capitalistic value right? (laughs) And even though in the long term, as I've shown in the book, it might have, it also might not have. And we still need to value it, even if it doesn't produce capitalistic outcome. Maybe this hundred year period is the period that had the great capitalistic outcome. And from here on out, particle physics is not going to produce anything that someone can monetize. We should not stop it, even if that's the case, because we are humans who want to know things and, right. uh, and and making sure that we give people the capacity, the time, the resources, the space to actually pursue those questions kind of on behalf of humanity. That sounds very grand. Um, no, it's but true. Giving people that, that capacity is such an important thing. And if we hadn't yeah, I mean, done if that you ever previously. Feel, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you ever feel, you know, kind of uh, shy about, you know, extolling the virtues of, of experimental research and basic research, uh, because maybe it's not monetizable. I mean, think about Dirac, you know, or, or Hamilton. You know, mm. somebody says, "Oh, what, what use are these spinners? You know, what what use are these? You know, quaternions? You know, he said, well, someday they'll describe antimatter, which will then be used uh, to make positron emission tomography. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like you could never ever predict it, right? Right. And famously, famously, it's like what what use was electricity, right? Uh, you know, even back in the day, and and uh, I, you know, the the experimenter says, "Oh, I'm 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 not sure, but one day you'll tax it." Well, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I think that's, <laughs> that's the thing right. we're so limited in we're so limited in ha- how we can imagine the future use of these ideas that are coming out, and that is really the nub of the story I've tried to tell is stop limiting ourselves to go, oh, well, what use is that going to be when you want the result in three years in a small grant from the government, right? No, no. The use might take decades. It might take centuries, but the knowledge is what's important. Right. 
and and what what use is, is is a discovery that never comes about because you were so gung ho about about monetizing it and it's very short sighted. Um, so uh, Professor Sheehy, last question that I like to ask guests uh, also comes from Sir Arthur C. Clarke where he said. Um, when an elderly but distinguished scientist says something is possible, she is almost certainly right. But when she says something is impossible, she is very likely wrong. I want to ask you, what do you change your mind about? What have you been wrong about? Or what have you been maybe misdirected about and later found to be completely surprised or serendipitously so? Um, what, what have you been wrong about, if anything? Oh, that's a that's a really that's a really good question. Um, I think actually, uh, I what I was wrong about was whether or not I could be a physicist. This is quite quite a personal answer to that question. I think. Yeah, um, no, please, please. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to imply that you're elderly. I just meant to imply you're distinguished. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I can take it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you know, as you said before, like obviously to get to the the point that that as a, a fully fledged academic running a group um, and, and sort of having that permanent academic position uh, was always something that I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm in this for the research. And if that career doesn't work out, that's, that's fine by me. It may never work out. Statistically, it's unlikely to, to work out. But I also underestimated my own ability, I think, to, to do research, partly because of the factors we were talking about earlier about it's so dependent on things like persistence and asking good questions, rather than just about whether or not you can solve a mathematical problem faster than your peers, right? So we're given this wrong impression in the early years of our training. And the other aspect of it for me was very much that I felt somehow different often to the people around me. The primary one was, was gender. But often it was just because I, you know, I uh, have these many different interests in the world, including things like uh, wanting to contribute to something which helps society as well as wanting to contribute to the fundamental questions in, in the world. And so uh, I guess for a long time, I, I was under the impression that like, okay, well, I'll just do some research for other people. <laughs> and then eventually I'll probably go on and work for a company or maybe I'll do science communication and write books. Uh, I end up doing both, I suppose. <laughs> and, and so that, that's the thing that I was wrong about. And that was one of the lovely things in writing this book and finding the stories of all the other women who went before me was just realizing that, and, and even a lot of the men, they all had that very similar experience. Um, most of them felt like for most of their career that they were failing right. and being able to sit with that, move through that, persist, do research anyway, and, and come out and go, oh, actually, if they can do it, you know, and they all won Nobel Prizes, all the people I'm writing about, I'm like, well, I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize, but, you know, maybe I can do this after all. <laughs> so, um, oh, yeah. It's such a delight and it's a gift to young, uh, young minds. And I think that's the the surest test if you've succeeded is would you have how much would you have paid for this book when you were you know a young student and i think uh, i think that's the truest test and i expect you know for you as it as it is for me this is a wonderful book and it's a it's a much needed book as i say i love my uh, theorist friends i've had on more than almost anybody uh, from all walks of theory and even I've had on economists and, <laughs> but, um, but there's something to be said for those of us that are confronting the cold, hard reality, uh, not just as, as you say, of, of understanding the, the logic and the, and the mechanisms that we're searching for, but also the, the budgets, the, the persuasion, the confidence that it takes to get to a point as you have surely gotten to and will continue to do so. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next, Susie. It's been a delight to talk to you. Congratulations. This is Thanks, a smashing Brian. success. And um, it, it is a book to be savored. So please do pick up copies, either digital, audio, or printed as uh, I have consumed in all those formats. I can attest to them. Susie, thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely to nerd out with you for a bit. <laughs> yes, and we'll nerd out again, hopefully uh, in, in person someday. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. For updates and insights into Brian's world, please sign up for his mailing list at brianketing.com slash list. If you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a piece of space dust in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment from the belly of an exploding star. Thanks for listening, and remember to always be curious. It could be the fundamental human drive that changes the world.